0: everyone. I had a conversation with a friend of mine this afternoon who's um, presenting at one of our Buddhism and psychotherapy conferences this weekend and she just wanted to go over a few things um, and uh, the title of the conference um, is about um, it's something along the lines is is Buddhism the cure for narcissism and um, Short answer, probably yes. Right? Um, and it's making a distinction between what we call clinical narcissism, which is something which is quite, quite extreme, um, and the kind of narcissism that we all experience as human beings It's part of our condition. So narcissism's just another fancy therapeutic name for how we're all caught in a soul-centred dream. Mm-hmm. And um, we were going over... Mm-hmm. A bit of Buddhist psychology about how the how the self how the little self develops develops it, its sense of permanency and solidness, you know, and uh, which I won't go into all the theory of it about the twelve linked causal chain and dependent co-arising. If you want to read about that, um, Thich Nhat Hanh is a very good Buddhist teacher to read his books around it. But anyway, the short version is, you know, we, we develop a sense of self um, in, the, in the small sense of that word. And then we're, we're looking for things in life to validate it. You know, we go out wanting things that will validate who we think we are. So she was using the example of a person who, plant, who decides that they'll have a red sports car. Right? And so it, all, the, all their attention is about getting a red sports car because if I get a red sports car, that'll, that'll validate who I think I am. You know, kind of special and, you know, adventurous and interesting and all those kind of things, you know. So I've got to have my red sports car, you know. And, we, and so we grasp at that, you know, and we attach to that, you know, until we get it. And it, and it does give it... We're looking for some kind of validation as to who we are. But the thing is, it's easy to see that with possessions, do you know, with red sports cars or houses or whatever it might be, or diamond rings, do you know, clothes, whatever it might be. It's easy to see that um, material attachment, do you know, um, that we get caught up in. And, um, but attachment has many different variations to it. It's much harder, for instance, to see how we're attached to outcomes. Yeah, but we, we have an expectation that things will run a certain way in our life and then we get thrown a curveball. Do you know, we don't expect something to happen and we have to deal with it. Um, we just expect that things will work out the way that we want them to be, you know, so it will validate our sense of self and our sense of place in the world. It's also not so easy to see um, how we get caught up um, with attachment in relationships as well, you know, and how attachment can become the basis of possessiveness in relationships. And um, on that subject, there's something I want to read to you, which I got from the internet, and uh, I haven't downloaded the whole lot of it. Um, But in the first part of it, this man is talking about how um, when he was younger, he got caught up in relationships of being possessive of women that he was in relationships with and how they kind of all went pear-shaped after a while because of that possessiveness and what he learned from it. And I'll read to you because I think it's quite simple and instructive. And the title of it's called um, Appreciation and Possession. It says, life is strange. There are a lot of unanswered questions about our existence and you can really only ever know what you alone are experiencing. Every day you wake up and have no idea what exactly the next 16 hours have in store for you. Life is a mystery unfolding. And I've learned that the difference between happy people and unhappy people is that happy people approach this mystery with love and wonder. Unhappy people approach this mystery with fear and insecurity. That fear is what makes people hop from relationship to relationship because it's a little less scary when you have a companion. That fear is what causes parents to get attached to their children and try to prevent their children from living the lives they're destined to live. That fear is what causes us to want to change the people around us instead of ourselves. But fear is the opposite of love, and love cannot exist where fear exists. Since possession is based in fear, there can be no love in possession. It was a very special day for me, the day I saw a pretty girl and didn't immediately have the desire to own her or to use her. For a very long time, any time I saw a girl I found attractive, I had to have her, if only temporarily. I thought this was normal and natural for a male because that's what I've been taught, but it's not. Seeing people that way is objectification, which is another byproduct of possessiveness. At one point, I didn't think it possible for me to see a girl in the same way that I see a flower, to see a girl, a woman, in the same way, to see a girl as a beautiful creation that I can find pleasure in looking at and wondering about, but not something that I need to possess, as something I can experience for a moment without needing to disrupt. I didn't give women this liberty for too long, but I've learned that's what love is. Allowing things to exist without assuming that their life needs to be changed or enhanced by your presence or opinion. Love is spacious. Love is understanding. Love is the freedom to exist just as you are, without anyone trying to impose onto you what they think you need. I entitle this post, Love, Appreciation and Possession but it's really no contest. Possessiveness is toxic, and truthfully doesn't deserve to be mentioned in the same conversation as love. good words, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Someone you can tell is speaking from their, their own experience, you know, and having, having suffered from being possessive and, uh, and attached, in this case, to women. Then seeing the suffering it creates and opening up into something which is non-possessive and non-attached. And it's the story of all of us. Right? It's the story of all of us. Not just that person. Um, but that's what we go through. That's what we go through in Dharma practice and what Dharma practice... Probably just with life experience we might learn that. You know, people often do get wiser as they grow older um, and learn things the hard way. But dharma practice probably gives you a set of skills where you can learn these things more quickly or more clearly. Um, You don't have to wait 50 years. (laughs) (laughs) It's possible to speed the process up a little bit. Um, But again, um, you don't want to be attached to outcomes. Well, it's possible to do dharma practice too, And you get caught up in outcomes. You know, I should be this kind of person by now. I should be enlightened by now. I should have got rid of that by now. I should be like this now. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's got to fall away. (laughs) At some some point in in Zen practice where you realise that you're not going to become your ideal person that you would like to be. You're just going to be what you are. You're going to be the suchness of being John or Judy, wherever it might be. And it's only when that falls away and you just sort of drop in, down into the suchness of you, um, well, then, then, you, then you're awakening. Then you're on the path to awakening. But it's, whenever you, the small self enters into Dharma practice, And as it usually does to begin with, it's got this ideal that it's aiming for and it's going to get it and it's going to possess it, then it's just further and further out of your reach. But that drops away, just sort of falls away somehow if you do this practice long enough and you just drop into what is. And that's just fine.